Then, said Ned firmly and emphatically, you shall do nothing of the sort. Gambling for money is a mean, pitiful, contemptible thing. Don't frown, my dear fellow. I do not apply these terms to you. I apply them to the principle of gambling, a principle which you do not hold, as I know from your admission made to me not many minutes ago, that you have often striven against the temptation. Many men don't realize the full extent of the sinfulness of many of their practices. But although that renders them less culpable, it does not render them innocent, much less does it justify the evil practices. Gambling is all that I have styled it, and a great deal worse, and you must give it up. I insist on it. Moreover, Tom, I insist on your coming to dine with me at the Parker House. I shall introduce you to my friend Captain Bunting, whom you already know by sight. So come along. Well, I will, said Tom, smiling at his friend's energy, but still hanging back. But you must permit me to go to my lodgings first. I shall be back immediately. Very good. Remember, we dine in the course of an hour, so be punctual. While Tom Collins hurried away to his lodgings, Ned Sinton proceeded toward the shores of the bay in a remarkably happy frame of mind, intending to pass his leisure hour in watching the thousands of interesting and amusing incidents that were perpetually taking place on the crowded quays, where the passengers from the newly arrived brig were looking in bewildered anxiety after their luggage and calling for porters, where traffic by means of boats between the fleet and the land created constant confusion and hubbub where men of all nations bargained for the goods of all climes in every known tongue. While he gazed in silence at the exciting and almost bewildering scene, his attention was attracted to a group of men, among whose vociferating tones he thought he distinguished familiar voices. "'That's it. Here's your man, sir,' cried one, bursting from the crowd, with a huge portmanteau on his shoulder. "'Now then, where'll I steer to?' "'Right ahead to the best hotel,' answered a slim Yankee, whose black coat, patent leather boots, and white kids in such a place told plainly enough that a superfine dandy had mistaken his calling. "'Aye, aye, sir,' shouted Bill Jones as he brushed past Ned in his new capacity of porter. "'Fie, you've cotched a live Yankee!' exclaimed a voice there was no mistaking as the owner slapped Bill on the shoulder. "'He'll make your fartin' if you only stick boy him. He's just cut out for the diggings. If his mother was here to take care of him. Larry O'Neill gave a chuckle, slapped his pockets, and cut an elephantine caper as he turned from contemplating the retreating figure of his shipmate's employer and advanced toward the end of the quay. Now then, who's next? cried he, holding out both arms and looking excited as if he were ready to carry off any individual bodily in his arms to any place for mere love without reference to money. Don't all speak at once. Two dollars a mile for anything under a ton, and yourself on the top of it for four. Hurroo, Mr. Sinton, darling, is it yourself? Ach, but this is the place entirely. Good and silver for the action almost. Ah, you needn't grin. Look here. Larry plunged both hands into the pockets of his trousers and pulled them forth full of half and quarter dollars with a few shining little nuggets of gold interspersed among them. Ned opened his eyes in amazement and, taking his excited comrade apart from the crowd, asked how he had come by so much money. "'Come by it,' he exclaimed. "'You could come by twice the sum if you liked. "'Sure, didn't I find that they was charging two dollars?' Equal to eight shillings, I'm told, for carrying a boxer portmanter the length of me foot. 
So I turns porter all at once, and fie, I made six dollars in less nor an hour. But as I was coming back, I says to myself, says I, Larry, you'll be the better of a small glass or something, eh? So in I goes to a grog shop, and fie, I had to pay half a dollar for a thimble full of brandy. Bad luck to them, as would turn the stomach of a pig. I almost had a round with the landlord, but they told me it was the same everywhere. So I went and had another in the next shop, I says, just to try. And it was true. Then a Yankee spoils my knife. The great pig sticker the bob short swapped with me for me junk a plum duff off the cape. It seems they've run out of such articles just at this time, and will give handfuls of gold for one. So says I, what'll you give? Three dollars, I guess, says one. Four, says another, he's cheating you. Four's bid, says I, mounted on a keg of backy and holding up the knife. Who says more? It's the rail stale, straight from Manchester or Connaught, I misremember which. Warranted to cut both ways, if you only turn the edge round and shove with a will. I be good in joke, but fie, they took me up in earnest and run up the price to twenty dollars. Four pounds as sure as me name's Larry, before I knowed where I was. I believe I could have got forty for it, but I hadn't the heart to ax more, for it wasn't worth a brass button. You've made a most successful beginning, Larry. Have you any more knives like that one? Sorrow one, mars the pity. But that's only a small bit of me speculations. I found six old newspapers at the bottom of me chest, and would you believe it, I sold em every one for half a dollar the pace. And I don't rightly know how much clear gold I've got by standing all morning at the post office. Standing at the post office? What do you mean? Neither more nor less nor what do I say. I suppose you know the mails comed in yesterday morning. So says I to myself this morning. You've got no living soul in the old country that's likely to write to you. But you better go for all that and ax if there's letters. Maybe there is. Who knows? So away I went, and sure enough I found a row of men waiting for their letters. So I crushes hard. Ugh! But I thought they'd a hung me on the spot. And I found it was a row that first come, first served. Fair play and no favor. They was all standing one behind another in a line half a mile long if it was a foot. As patient as could be, some readin' the newspapers and some drinking coffee and tea and grog that was sold by men as went up and down the line the whole morning. So away I goes to the end of the line and took me place, determined to stand it out, and in three minutes I heard a tale of a dozen men behind me. Fie, Larry, says I. It's the first time you ever commenced at the end of a thing in order to get to the beginning. Well, when I was getting pretty near the post office window, oh, here's the chap behind me a saying to the fellow behind him that he expected no letters but only took up his place in the line to sell it to them what did. And sure enough, I found that lots of them were on the same errand. Just then up comes a miner in big boots and a wide awake. Och, says he, 
who'll sell me a place, and with that he offered a lot of pure good lumps. Guess it's too little, says the man next me. Ah, oh, you thieving blackguard, says I. Here, your honour, I'll sell you my place for half the lot. I can wait for me letter, more be token we're not sure there is one. I oh, see I was roiled at the Yankees' grade. So ought I steps and insteps the miner and hands me the hole he'd offered at first. Take them, my man, says he. You're an honest fellow, and it's a trait to meet one here. Capital, cried Ned, laughing heartily. And you didn't try for a letter after all? Porter there, shouted a voice from the quay. That's me, your honour. Here you are, replied the Irishman, bounding away with a yell and shouldering a huge leathern trunk with which he vanished from the scene, leaving Ned to pursue the train of thought evoked by his account of his remarkable experiences. We deem it necessary here to assure the reader that the account given by Larry O'Neill of his doings was by no means exaggerated. The state of society and the eccentricities of traffic displayed in San Francisco and other Californian cities during the first years of the gold fever, beggars all description. Writers on that place and period find difficulty in selecting words and inventing similes in order to convey anything like an adequate idea of their meaning. Even eyewitnesses found it almost impossible to believe the truth of what they heard and saw, and some have described the whole circle of life and manners there to have been more like to the wild, incongruous whirl of a pantomime than to the facts of real life. Even in the close and abrupt juxtaposition of the ludicrous and the horrible this held good. Ned Sinton had scarcely parted from his hilarious shipmate when he was attracted by shouts as if of men quarreling in a gaming-house and a few moments later the report of a pistol was heard, followed by a sharp cry of agony. Rushing into the house and forcing his way through the crowd, he reached the table in time to see the bloody corpse of a man carried out. This unfortunate had repeatedly lost large sums of money, and growing desperate staked his all on a final chance. He lost, and drawing his bowie knife in the heat of despair, rushed at the president of the table. A dozen arms arrested him and rendered his intended assault abortive. Nevertheless, the president coolly drew a revolver from under the cloth and shot him dead. For a few minutes there was some attempt at disturbance and some condemned while others justified the act. But the body was removed and soon the game went on as if nothing had occurred. Sickened with the sight, Ned hurried from the house and walked rapidly towards the shores of the bay, beyond the limits of the canvas town where he could breathe the free ocean air and wander on the sands in comparative solitude. The last straggling tent in that quarter was soon behind him, and he stopped by the side of an old upturned boat, against which he leaned and gazed out upon the crowded bay with saddened feelings. As he stood in contemplation, he became aware of a sound as if of heaving, plethoric breathing under the boat. Starting up, he listened intently and heard a faint groan. He now observed what had escaped his notice before, that the boat against which he leaned was a human habitation. A small hole near the keel admitted light, and possibly at times emitted smoke. Hastening round to the other side, he discovered a small aperture which served as a doorway, it was covered with a rag of coarse canvas, which he lifted and looked in. "'Who's there?' inquired a voice as sharply as extreme weakness would allow. "'Have a care. 
There's a revolver pointing at your head. If you come in without leave, I'll blow out your brains. I am a friend, said Ned, looking towards the further end of the boat, where on a couch of straw lay the emaciated form of a middle-aged man. Put down your pistol, friend. My presence here is simply owing to the fact that I heard you groan, and I would relieve your distress if it is in my power. You are the first that has said so since I laid down here, sighed the man, falling back heavily. Ned entered, and, advancing as well as he could in a stooping posture, sat down beside the sick man's pallet and felt his pulse. Then he looked anxiously in his face, on which the hand of death was visibly placed. "'My poor fellow,' said Ned in a soothing tone, "'you are very ill, I fear. Have you no one to look after you?' "'Ill,' replied the sick man almost fiercely, "'I am dying.' I have seen death too often and know it too well to be mistaken. His voice sank to a whisper as he added, It is not far off now. For a few seconds Ned could not make up his mind what to say. He felt unwilling to disturb the last moments of the man. At last he leaned forward and repeated from memory several of the most consoling passages of Scripture. Twice over, he said, Though thy sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as wool, and him that cometh unto me, Christ, I will in no wise cast out. The man appeared to listen, but made no reply. Suddenly he started up, and leaning on his elbow, looked with an awfully earnest stare into Ned's face. Young man, gold is good. Gold is good. Remember that. If you don't make it your God. After a pause, he continued, I made it my God. I toiled for it night and day. In heat and cold, wet and dry, I gave up everything for it. I spent all my time in search of it, and I got it. And what good can it do me now? I have spent night and day here for weeks threatening to shoot anyone who should come near my gold. Ha! he added sharply, observing that his visitor glanced around the apartment. You'll not find it here. No, look, look round, peer into every corner, tear up every plank of my boat, and you'll find nothing but rotten wood and dust and rusty nails. Be calm, my friend, said Ned, who now believed that the poor man's mind was wandering. I don't want your gold. I wish to comfort you if I can. Would you like me to do anything for you after? After I'm dead, said the man abruptly. No, nothing. I have no relations, no friends, no enemies even now. Yes, he added quickly, I have one friend. You are my friend. You have spoken kindly to me. A beggar. You deserve the name of friend. Listen, I want you to be my heir. See here, I have had my will drawn up long ago with the place for the name left blank I had intended. But no matter. What is your name? Edward Sinton. Here, hand me that inkhorn and the pen. There, continued the man, pushing the paper towards him. I have made over to you the old boat and the ground it lies on. Both are mine. The piece of ground is marked off by four posts. Take care of the... The man's voice sank to a mere whisper. Then it ceased suddenly. When Ned looked at him again, he started. 
for the cold hand of death had sealed his lips forever. A feeling of deep, intense pity filled the youth's heart as he gazed on the emaciated form of this friendless man, yet he experienced a sensation approaching almost to gladness when he remembered that the last words he had spoken to him were those of our blessed Savior to the chief of sinners. Spreading the ragged piece of canvas that formed a quilt over the dead man's face, he rose and left the strange dwelling, the entrance to which he secured, and then hastened to give information of the death to the proper authorities. Ned was an hour too late for dinner when he arrived at the hotel, where he found Captain Bunting and his new friend awaiting him in some anxiety. Hastily informing them of the cause of his detention, he introduced them to each other, and forgot for a time the scene of death he had just witnessed, in talking over plans for the future, and in making arrangements for a trip to the diggings. End of chapter 7